Our gospel reading this morning is uh, from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. How Mark begins his uh, account of who Jesus is and what he did. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word which you have given to us. We pray that you would help us to appreciate it for the gift that it is. Help us to use it for the purpose for which you have given it. I pray that you would help us to be those uh, this morning who have ears to hear. Or that we would be those who not only hear the word and so deceive ourselves, but who actually do what it says. Lord, give us uh, minds that are attentive and hearts that are soft. Lord, guide us by your word and by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It says, in, it says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Our New Testament reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. It's one of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. And he begins uh, addressing the letter that way. This Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Grace. And peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. This is the word of the Lord. Does anybody here know what the word sophomore means? If you don't, and you are a sophomore, my apologies. This next part's going to get a little rough. So the word sophomore actually comes from two Greek words, uh, one meaning wisdom and the other meaning, well, basically moron is where we get that word. <laughs> fool, yeah. So you have a wise fool, and you're like, well, that doesn't work. You can't put those two together unless you've ever been a sophomore, and then you probably have stories. Um, <laughs> But the idea is it's uh, somebody who 
has some knowledge. They've got some uh, idea of what's going on, but just enough to be dangerous. Have you ever encountered that? Have you ever encountered somebody who thinks they know more about what you are kind of an expert in because they know a little bit about it? Pretty frustrating, right? (laughs) They start telling you how to do things, and you're like, you have no idea. And so you see this actually play out so many times in uh, people who are trying to get certain jobs, and it's like, oh, if if I were in that role, this is what I would do. And there's all this big talk, right? And then they get in the role, and it turns out that that's a very different role than what they thought it was. That there are a lot more moving pieces than they ever imagined. And there's so much more that they're trying to hold in balance. My, uh, <laughs> well, I know someone who had this situation as a little league coach. First year, they were a parent. And quite critical of how the little league coach was doing everything. This guy doesn't know what in the world he's doing. Well, then... Second year, that coach decides he's done. He's not doing that anymore. (laughs) And so this person says, well, I'll step in. I'll be the coach. And so he does. And instead of it going just like he thought it would, he found out there were many, many more things that he had not yet considered. And so moving from kind of that sophomore into the uh, learning of wisdom. And I bring this up because... uh, the amount of armchair quarterbacking that we do uh, in this world is just amazing. Like, this is one of our favorite pastimes, and it doesn't even matter what it is we're talking about. Sometimes we're talking about football, and so, you know, quarterbacking is the appropriate term. But we armchair quarterback everything from uh, <laughs> national politics to local school boards, etc., 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 And unfortunately, we get in this uh, habit so much that this becomes how we approach God. And we do an awful lot of armchair quarterbacking God. And what I would put forward is that uh, most of the time we have, when we're armchair quarterbacking God, we are closer to the moron side of things than we are to the wisdom side of things (laughs) in our sophomore status. We're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 25 this morning. And we're going to look at the way in which, in Isaiah chapter 55, God says, For uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, God does things differently than we do them. Very differently than we do them. And when we think we have an idea of how he ought to do it, this is how it ought to be run, we have no idea. There's a much bigger picture of everything going on. Uh, And so, here we go. This is in Genesis chapter 25. We're going to see this a bit. But in Genesis chapter 25, uh, we have been following Abraham. This man that God has called to leave his family and leave his land. And God has made these amazing promises to him of how he is going to bless him. He's going to give him a great family. And uh, he's actually going to bless, he's going to give him this land. He's actually going to bless the whole world through this man and his family. And so we've been following that story along. And, uh, 
And we pick up the story now at the very end of his life. Here's how this goes. Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Letishites, and the Leamites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. We're going to pause there for a second, just talk about uh, the end of Abraham's life. Abraham has been walking with God for some time now. And when we get to this part of the story, it, uh, it's a little odd. You get the end of his life after he has already had Ishmael with his Egyptian slave Hagar when he was trying to make things happen that God had promised. And God's like, no, that's not how we're doing this. And then uh, he has his son Isaac with his wife Sarah. And then Sarah has died. And then he has another wife and has uh, six more sons, apparently. And so we see what might be the beginnings of God fulfilling his promises, right? He's promised to give him as many descendants as the stars in the sky. And so at this many, how many, at this time, how many does Abraham have when he dies? How many sons? Depending on how you count, he either has one or eight. And that's kind of the way that Abraham views it, is he kind of has eight and he gives them gifts and takes care of them while he's alive. And yet, even in his death, who does he leave everything to? He doesn't divide it evenly among them. He leaves everything to Isaac. Why? Why just the one? Why is it that Abraham seems to be putting all of his eggs in one basket? (laughs) It's because Isaac was the one who was the child of the promise, the one that God says it is through Isaac whom your descendants will be reckoned. Isaac is the one through whom the one is going to come to bless all the nations of the world. Isaac uh, is that one. And so we see Abraham, even in his death, holding on to the promise of God. We also see where Abraham is buried. is in the one piece of land that he and his family own in the land that God has promised them. The tomb, and the field where the tomb is, that we saw him buy uh, a few chapters ago for his wife, Sarah. But this is it. This is why the book of Hebrews tells us that in his lifetime, Abraham really didn't see the fulfillment of all these promises. All he sees is kind of just the beginning of it. Why? Wouldn't you think if you were God and you made these promises to somebody that you would want to let them see the fullness of all of the promises that you have made fulfilled? Isn't that what you want them to see? God's ways are different than our ways, though. He works on a very different scale, a very different uh, (laughs) physical scale, but also a very different time scale. 
And so Abraham doesn't see his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He doesn't see uh, the land uh, that God has promised to his descendants in their possession. He doesn't see the way in which all the nations on earth are blessed before he dies. And yet he still believes. Say, okay, so what happens with his descendants? We heard what happens with some of them as far as uh, the sons of uh, Keturah and who some of them have had. We move on to Ishmael. What happens with him? Glad you asked. Verse 12. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Sarah's slave, Hagar the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. And we are not done with the weird names. Here we go. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Abdeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kadima. We're just going to pretend I said those right. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt as you go toward Asher. And they lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. We're not going to talk a lot about Ishmael, but I do want to point something out. And it's one of the things that Scripture points out here. How many sons did Ishmael have? You notice that? Twelve. And they became twelve, not new nations, twelve tribal rulers, right? That they became... um, the 12 tribes of Ishmael, basically. Hmm. Well, that kind of sounds familiar if you know where this story is headed. But otherwise, just kind of tuck that away for now. It also seems like these are kids that Ishmael is having, uh, maybe even while Abraham is alive. In which case, you look at who this promise of many descendants is going to come through, and it kind of looks like it might be Ishmael who's having all these kids, right? Right? Whereas Isaac, how many kids does he have yet? At this point, none. And in fact, as we start reading uh, his story, starting in verse 19, it says, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac, you know, the one through whom the promise is going to come. It says, Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Pause. How many sons did Ishmael have? Twelve. How many does Isaac have? Zero. Well, this isn't good. Once again, this is uh, the way that God works is not the way that we would tend to do things. If we were going to be placing our bets on which one of these two sons is going to be the one who's going to have descendants as many of the stars in the sky, there's not a one of us who would pick Isaac. On the other hand, Abraham leaves all his stuff to Isaac, trusting that God is going to do what he's promised he's going to do. And Abraham can do this because he's seen what God has already done. If you remember, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were also childless when God called them and made promises to them. And even when he said he was going to give them a child, like they, it took them a while to really wrap their heads around this. That's where Ishmael comes from. 
But then they see God uh, is actually faithful to his promise and does things they wouldn't expect. I heard one person talking about uh, this theme that you find throughout the Bible of one of the ways that God works is he loves to stack the deck against himself. And you can probably think through the Bible of various times where it seems like from all human perspective, there is no way that God is going to do this. There's no way. You can't work this out. And then you turn the page and he works it out in amazing ways that we would not uh, think of. I'll give you just one example, but there are tons of them. It's when the Israelites, uh, many years from this, are leaving slavery in Egypt and they come to the edge of the Red Sea. You remember this? And not a one of the Israelites knows how in the world this is going to work out well. In fact, that's what they are crying out about. Like, we see no way that this ends well. We are all going to die here. We're going to be taken back. We're going to be killed. There's no way this ends well. We are trapped between the armies of Pharaoh who are coming after us and the giant Red Sea, which we have no way to cross. And we're completely cut off. There's nowhere to go. We are doomed. That's their perspective. Well, that's not the end of the story. And God has actually led them there to stack the deck against himself so that when they are rescued, it's not because of what they have done. It's what God has done for them. And so we see this over and over again. Like I say, I'll leave you to think of other examples of that. There are a ton. But here's one of them. Think about this. God is going to pick somebody through whom he's going to you know, promise lots of descendants. And who does he pick? He picks the couple of Abraham and Sarah who can't have any kids. But then he miraculously gives them a son. And then we, as we looked uh, last time, he miraculously arranges this uh, marriage between that son, Isaac, and his wife, Rebecca. He brings them together uh, in amazing ways. But then they can't have any kids either. So what, this is the worst way to get lots of descendants. <laughs> but that's what he does. And he's stacking the deck against himself. And, he's, uh, and yet we know that he's going to be faithful to his promise. And so we pick up where we left off. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Pause again. Why is this happening to her? I mean, it's partly an answer to prayer, right? That's why this is happening. On the other hand, I said babies. Did you notice that? They didn't have ultrasound back then. For all she knew, this is just a particularly difficult <laughs> uh, pregnancy. But then God actually answers her. He owes her, by the way, no explanation. But he gives her one anyway. I love this. So the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Additional information there. Not just, well, you're having twins. That's why it feels so crazy in there. But it's actually talking about how they're going to be, not only as adults, but in future generations. This is how it's going to be. And even has that line in there before they're born of how the older will serve the younger. Okay, so who are they when they're born? Verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. 
So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with, a, with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. There is uh, a lot more here than we have time to go into. But it is rightly pointed out that if you put yourself in the position of Esau, who sells his birthright for a bowl of stew, that's not a good deal, right? And this is um, one of those clear examples of the difference between instant gratification and delayed gratification, right? There is... uh, the promise of the birthright. This is the one, I mean, Isaac got everything that Abraham had when he died. Well, when Isaac dies, it's going to go to these two sons. And, uh, and the older one is going to get the double portion. And so he's selling that for one bowl of stew. We go, why would you do that? Who would do that? We all do this. (laughs) If we stop to think about the ways in which, if you were to ask Esau, which one is more valuable, your birthright or bowl of stew? Well, of course the birthright. Although, in the moment when his fleshly desires are crying out for the stew, it's just too much for him. And he says, "Uh, no, I'll take the stew. And gives up the thing that is of much greater value. When you think about the things that you would say are very, very valuable in your life. Maybe some of the things that are the most valuable if you were to list it. How often do we trade that in for stuff of much lesser value? There is a line in a song by the Grey Havens. Um, the song is called Magic in the Moment. And one of the lines is, I've got a beautiful wife and beautiful kids, but I have a phone in my pocket and I've been choosing it. Anybody relate to that? I think the same thing that happens with Esau when he makes that choice happens to us as well. When we choose the lesser things and we uh, dismiss the things that we would say are greater value, we end up doing the same thing he did with his birthright, which is he despised it. Why? I suspect it's because there's something psychological there when he says he doesn't want to admit to himself that he made a bad trade, so he has to convince himself that, well, that birthright is terrible anyway. I probably made the right choice. <laughs> I think we do this. When we choose not uh, to spend time with our family for something lesser, and then we start resenting and despising our family and treating them badly as though, well, they're not really worth spending time with anyway. Or when we do the same with God and start thinking, well, he's not really that important after all. Or 
with our reading of Scripture. Eh, the Bible, whatever. And so we try to downplay in our minds the things that are actually of greater, much greater importance so that we don't have to admit to ourselves we've made a bad deal. But we are so very often making bad deals. But you know what? I don't think that's what this passage is about. I don't think that's the primary thing anyway. I think it's a very important part of this, and it certainly is in there. Uh, I think the main point of this is not about Esau. It's about Jacob. We have been following along Abraham and Isaac, and we have seen the ways in which Abraham has reflected the character of God. Not perfectly, but he has done so in some pretty significant ways. We've actually seen this from Isaac, too, though we didn't dwell on that. And we've even seen it from Rebecca in the way in which she extended such generous hospitality to this stranger that shows up at a well. And so we have seen kind of this generational reflection of the character of God. And then we get to these, uh, these kids, and we see that the younger one is going to be the one who well, is going to rule over the other. So, okay, okay, this is the one. This is the child of the promise through whom everyone's going to be blessed. And so we can't wait to see the ways in which he reflects the character of God. And the first two stories we have about him aren't that. The first introduction we have to Jacob is when he is born. And what's he doing? He's grabbing his brother's heel, which is actually symbolic of uh, usurping a role that doesn't belong to him, which then we see a little bit later. (laughs) But we see him doing that at birth, and you're like, ooh, that's not a good start. On the other hand, he's an infant. What are you going to do, you know? Okay, fine. Fast forward to when he's an adult. What's the first thing we hear of him doing? Do we see him reflecting the character of God in his compassion towards his brother who's in need or extending generous hospitality to him? Nope. How would you describe this business deal he makes? I don't even think it'd be proper to call it a business deal. This is price gouging, right? He is taking advantage of his brother who is in need, and he is doing it for self-centered, self-serving reasons. This is the opposite of what we see in the character of God, right? Jesus even says, who displays the character of God most clearly, he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jacob isn't giving here. He's taking. And he's taking advantage of someone in need. This is not what we see from God throughout all of Scripture. Certainly not what we see as he reveals himself in Jesus. And so this is our introduction to Jacob. What? (laughs) Why? And I think the... um, And the point of it is that when we see people like Abraham doing great things, we see Rebecca and we're like, oh, yes, these are the people that God chooses. The answer is, well, sometimes he chooses people like that. Sometimes he chooses people like Jacob. If it were our choice to make, and we saw this kind of thing going on, and we saw the difference between Jacob and Esau, the one who seems more like, if you're familiar with the Lion King, one of these is more like Mufasa. He's out there. He's leading. He's hunting. He's in the wild, ruling over creation as God intended. And the other is like his brother Scar, who's 
pacing around in the cave or at home in the tents, scheming to how he can take his brother's kingly role. Who in their right mind is going to choose Scar as the one through whom to bless the whole world? Those of you who haven't seen The Lion King, or maybe it's been a while, he's not the one you pick. (laughs) That's who God chooses. I think that's the point of this story, is that God's ways are not our ways. He chooses the one that we wouldn't choose. This shows up again and again and again, but it shows up again in, um, in the Gospels when Jesus calls his disciples. And who's he calling? The people we probably wouldn't choose. And so you take somebody like Matthew, who is a tax collector, and the religious leaders of the time don't like that at all. They don't like that Jesus would even eat with a tax collector. And yet Jesus doesn't just eat with him. He calls him to be his disciple. Don't you know who these people are? Jesus, that you're associating with? You think Jesus was surprised to find out that Matthew was a tax collector? Now he knows this. But he knows there's more to the story than just Matthew who has been selling out his people for his own personal gain. Hmm, kind of like Jacob. But he knows there's more to it than just that. And Jesus has plans for Matthew. And that Matthew will actually one day go on to write one of the most beautiful books ever written that details the life and the ministry and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the ways in which he brings the kingdom of God into this world and into people's lives. And I think Jesus sees that there is more to Matthew than just Matthew, the tax collector. There is no way, uh, if we would kind of grasp that and say, okay, tax collector, that's who you pick, definitely not the Pharisees. Pharisees are always the bad guys, according to Jesus, right? So you'd never pick a Pharisee. Oh, wait, the guy who wrote most of the books of the New Testament was a Pharisee. He was known as Saul. And we wouldn't pick him either. But God picks him. And he uses him to go on and bless the world in amazing ways. See, the thing about uh, God picking Jacob and us being introduced to him as somebody we wouldn't pick is an example that there's always more to the story than what meets the eye, more than we can originally see. If you go outside right now and you look up at the sky, how many stars are you going to see? One. (laughs) We've named it the sun. Um, If you were to wait a couple weeks till we have the new moon, a nice clear night, how many stars are you going to see? A lot more. Those stars are there right now. You just can't see them because of the sun being so bright. But even when you're looking at the stars and they look like these just pinpoints of light, occasionally there'll be one that's like a little blurry and you're like, oh, it's a little out of focus star. Then you get your telescope, a very powerful telescope, and you look at that little blurry star and you find out that's not a blurry star at all. That's an entire galaxy full of stars and planets. There's so much more going on than we, um, than we can first see. 
And so when we say, why in the world would God choose someone like Jacob? I don't know. Maybe he likes to stack the deck against himself. Maybe he just knows more than we do. But it really comes home when we start asking the question, well, why would God choose me? And I will tell you, the devil's really good at reminding people why we don't deserve to be chosen. But the gospel message is the exact counter for that that we need. And that is, you're right. We don't deserve to be chosen. But God chose me anyway. He chose me even though maybe I do the kind of things that Jacob does, that Matthew does, that Saul does. But God knows us better than we know us. He chooses us anyway, and he has plans for us to be his instruments and bring his blessing into the world. And so, in that, we don't have to be the ones who have all the answers, who know all the things. We can be content to be sophomores. Say, I might be a moron in a lot of areas. (laughs) I don't understand how God is running everything. But I know that he chooses people that it doesn't make sense sometimes. And I know he knows what he's doing. So I will be the sophomore, and I'll let him be the master, the teacher, the instructor, the ruler, and the king over the whole universe, and even my life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.